We often express to people that studying the Bible is just like studying anything else. And to the degree that grammar is grammar and logic is logic and deduction is deduction, no matter what field you're talking about, that's true. It's not like there really are special rules about studying the Bible versus studying anything else. However, on the other hand, there really are some differences between studying the Scripture and just about any other field that we might be talking of. For instance, when you were in high school and you got into your algebra and geometry classes, did your teacher come in with you and say, well, here are some numbers and here are some shapes and you need to study it on your own and figure out what you believe about algebra and geometry? Or in chemistry and physics, did you come into class and the teacher say, all right, here are some elements and here are some objects. You need to toss those around and mix them up and you need to study them for yourself and you need to figure out what you believe and what you think about chemistry and physics. Probably not. Now, no doubt if you became an expert in any one of those fields that uh, your job was to go back and restudy and relearn and and, and figure some of these things out for yourself. But most of the time, for most of us, we went in and our job was to learn what everybody else had already studied and already learned, and they passed on those rules and those principles, and we were supposed to figure that out, and we were supposed to, just supposed to be able to spit that stuff back out on the test. If we became an expert, we might have to restudy and re-experiment, or we might go beyond what others have done to, to try to learn more, but we don't expect anybody and everybody who dabbles in those disciplines to to restudy and figure out the truth on all of those things, necessarily. But that is exactly what we expect everyone to do with the Bible. We expect them to study for themselves. And in fact, that is what we should expect others to do. Each and every one of us needs to study. We need to study the Bible for ourselves. We don't want to just rely on what anyone else says. We need to pass on and recognize that truth comes from God and from His Word. It doesn't necessarily come from any one man's interpretation. And we have to learn to follow the principle, each and every one of us, and to pass this principle on to others of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, which points out to us that we need to do our best to be an approved worker who handles accurately the Word of God. That's our job. And that's the job that we need to pass on to everyone. It is our job to study. No doubt we need teachers. We may need some guidance, and and that's fine. But in the end, we've got to study for ourselves and figure out what the Word of God says so that we can have our own faith. Now, having established that, there are some problems involved in that. Namely, as we are all restudying, and as each generation comes up and begins to try to, to step out on their own and and it's really, it's just like, just like our children. You know, in a few months, T- uh, Trina, let's say Tessa's about to try to start walking. She's got that one down. In a few months, Trina is about to try to start walking. And what's going to happen the first time she stands up and lets go of the couch? She's going to fall down. I mean, that's just what's going to happen. And we're going to help her, we're going to encourage her, and she's going to turn around and she's going to start trying to stand up again. And what's she probably going to do the second time? fall down, and probably the third and the fourth time. But somewhere along in that, she's going to take a couple of steps, and then a couple of more steps, and then she's going to be running around like all the other rugrats in my house. But the reality is, as each of us grows up and we start to take these steps out on our own, it's just natural that sometimes we're going to fall down. We're going to make some mistakes. We're going to be studying, we're going to hear something, or we're going to think something, and it's just not going to be right. But, but one of the things that most amazes me 
is how often some of those mistakes can be made. And instead of people realizing that they've fallen down and they need to get back to the Scripture and just see what it says, sometimes those mistakes start getting spread around. And it amazes me that, that entire groups of Christians can buy into mistakes and act like we can go back to the Bible and find things that we just can't find there. And there, there are several of those kind of things, but there are three in particular that I believe our reading in Corinthians allows us to talk about this week. Some of them that, that I've really wanted to talk to you about for some time to just make sure that in our minds we're sticking with the Word of God and we're walking with our hand in Jesus and not wallowing around on the ground thinking that we're standing and walking. We need to make sure that we get up on our feet based upon the Word of God and doing what He says. And so what I want us to do tonight is, is take a look at some corrections from Corinthians. And the three areas that we're going to do that hopefully tonight, if we have time, we're going to be taking a look at some corrections regarding the Lord's Supper. We're going to take a look at some corrections regarding our assemblies. And we're going to take a look at some corrections regarding the collection. That's what we're going to be looking at tonight. So, before we get into that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we thank you and praise your name because you are awesome and powerful and you've given us your word so that we might know how to serve and honor and glorify you. And we hope, Father, that everything we do pleases you because we love you and we want to please you. It's not just an issue of us following rules, but Father, you are our Father. We love you and we're so appreciative of the love you've given us and we want to return that to you. And so we want to do what you've said and we're thankful for your word that allows us to know how to glorify and honor and praise your name. We lift you up, Father, because you are awesome and powerful. And we ask that you forgive us because we're sinful. We ask that you help us to overcome our sins. Help us to overcome our falls. Help us to turn away from them and get back to your word and doing your will. We love you, Father, and we thank you so much for loving us. Through your Son's name, we offer this prayer. Amen. Well, we want to talk about corrections regarding the Lord's Supper. It's modern and hip and vogue today, and popular to act like we can go back to the New Testament. And what we find in the New Testament is that the Lord's Supper was given as a common meal, or even part of a bigger meal. Perhaps some folks feel that way just because it's called a supper. Perhaps some folks feel that way because when Jesus first instituted it, it was, in fact, taken in the context of a meal that they were participating in that time. Perhaps they feel that way because, well, just because of our infatuation today with eating. I don't know exactly why folks have come up with this, but they're, they're talking and they're speaking as if when we go back to the New Testament, what we find just all over its pages is the Christians were gathering together essentially for just some kind of spiritual get-together where they would sit around and they would eat and they would talk, and in the midst of that, or, or maybe the whole meal would just be this unleavened bread and this fruit of the vine, and, and they'd be passing around and they'd be eating, and in the midst of that, they'd just start talking about what it means to them and, and how wonderful Jesus was. And, you know, the thing about all that is it sounds wonderful. And, and its novelty and its newness makes it feel really spiritual. It looks like it's really insightful. The only problem is it's just not biblical. That's just not what we find in the New Testament. And I'm so amazed that people today are acting like, oh, we just go and every time we see them taking the Lord's Supper, this is what it was like. We, we see it. We read it. It's there. We figured out that the way church has been doing it for years is just all wrong. And we need to get back to the way they were doing it in the New Testament, like this meal. And that's just not what we find in the New Testament. In fact, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is the only place in the New Testament where we find the Lord's Supper connected with a common meal, and there it is rebuked. 
But before we look at the passage we've read this week, let's go ahead and take a look at the institution of the Lord's Supper. I want you to look in Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, we find Jesus' institution. I guess I have to look at the right verses there. I'm trying to look. It's not there. There it is. Verse 26. In Matthew 26 and verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's no doubt that the disciples and Jesus were, in fact, gathered together, and they were participating in the Passover meal. They were having a large meal that they were eating that was a memorial for the Old Testament saints to remember their deliverance through the ten plagues and the trip through the Red Sea, their deliverance from Egypt and that bondage there. And every year they participated in this feast of the Passover to remember their freedom from death as it passed over those who had the blood on their door. On their door. And so they were remembering that. And in the midst of that, Jesus took unleavened bread and said, This is my body, do it in remembrance of me. This, And then took some fruit of the vine and said, Drink this and do it in remembrance of me. This is a memorial of the blood of the covenant, which I have shed for the forgiveness of sins. Now, because it's connected with this meal, I somewhat understand why folks today would suggest that the Lord's Supper was initially taken as part of a meal. I understand why they jumped to that conclusion, and yet we need to understand that that is a jumping to a conclusion. It is not what follows from the text. I'd just like you to consider a few things that we see when the supper was instituted. First of all, was the supper really taken as part of a common meal? If we're going to go back to when Jesus instituted it, we can't say that. The Passover was anything but a common meal. If we are going to try to take what Jesus did here on this night and say that the Lord's Supper is supposed to be connected with a meal because of that, then we better do what it says and connect it to the meal that Jesus was taking. The disciples were not just gathered together to eat. They were not just gathered together for a good time and fellowship, as it's so often misused today. The disciples and Jesus were gathered together to participate in a very specific memorial that had specific laws and specific commands. They had specific duties they were supposed to accomplish, specific roles. There was a specific way in which it was supposed to be eaten. There were all kinds of laws around it. And if we're going to try to say that because of that, the Lord's Supper is connected to a meal, then let's connect it to the meal Jesus did. The Passover. But we know that's not going to work because we know that the disciples in the New Testament took it on the first day of the week. And the Passover is just a one year, once a year thing. We also know that the Passover is part of the Old Covenant. It's no longer binding upon us. And those feasts were a shadow of the real. And we're no longer submitting to that shadow. The reality is, when Jesus instituted the Supper while they were at the Passover... He was not trying to say, partake of this along with a meal. He was establishing a new memorial. A more memorial for the new covenant in which we participate. The participation in the bread, which is His flesh, and the fruit of the vine, which is His blood. The second thing I want you to recognize is that Jesus did not institute the Lord's Supper as a meal in and of itself. We need to recognize that they were already eating a meal. 
They had a meal prescribed by God with all sorts of, of parts to it. Jesus did not then turn around and eat a second meal with his disciples. He didn't say, well, I hope you guys didn't eat too much because now we've got to eat meal number two. Rather, while they were eating that meal, he took some bread and broke it and gave it to them. He took some fruit of the vine and divided it up among them, and they participated. They weren't eating a second meal. They were eating a memorial. Consider some of the language that's used to describe this. There in Matthew chapter 26, again, this time in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing, broke it and gave it to the disciples. Here's a loaf of bread that Jesus has. Unleavened bread, no doubt, because it's the Passover, and that's why we use unleavened bread. Unleavened bread, loaf doesn't come like wonder bread. I mean, you can make it bigger than often we see, but it's not like a loaf of wonder bread. It's unleavened bread, which means it's small and flat. It doesn't rise. But he took some bread and broke it and distributed it to the people. Thirteen of them. Now, I've got to tell you, I don't know a single grown man that would tell you that one-thirteenth of a loaf of bread was a meal for him. I imagine it was a bigger portion than the pinch that we often traditionally use. But it certainly was not a meal in and of itself. And I want you to notice the language that's used to describe the cup. This time look over in Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 17, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 17, Jesus, it says, when he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. He took a cup and they divided it among themselves, which, by the way, brethren, demonstrates that we do not have to all drink from just one cup. He divided it among them. But I want you to notice, he took a cup and they divided it among themselves. It's not a jar. It's not a pitcher. And there are words for that in the New Testament. He took a cup and they divided it amongst themselves. Now, no doubt it was probably more than a little thimble full that we most often and traditionally use. But what I want you to recognize is that Jesus did not get them together and they just had a table full of bread and pitchers of juice and they're, they're passing it around and, and uh, they're talking about it and eating a little bread and drinking a little juice and eating a little bread and drinking a little juice. It wasn't a meal. He took a piece of bread and broke it up and they ate it. He took a cup and divided it and they drank it. I don't know about you, but that sounds familiar to me. See, the fact is, we just cannot get back to the institution of the supper and get this idea of the supper as a literal meal. That's not what Jesus instituted. That's not what they did when they instituted. The other thing, regarding this concept of it's like we're just sitting around the table and having the feel of it's like we invited people into our home and we're sitting around the table and just talking about it, but, but now we just talk about the body and blood of the Lord and what Jesus means to us. Did you recognize that when Jesus gave them the emblems, he didn't say, talk about this. He didn't say, tell me what it means to you. He said, here's what it means. You do this in remembrance of me. And expected them to partake, remembering. The fact is, there's nothing in the institution of the supper that would lead any of us to believe that the Lord's Supper was intended to be taken as a literal meal in which we gather together and sit around and converse and talk about what it means to us. It's just not there. Well, let's look at the passage that we read this week, because when I read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, to me, the correction is just complete. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 20, Paul said to the Corinthians, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. I think we need to notice what's going on here. First of all, the Corinthians, when they gather together, Paul says they have a couple of problems. Number one, they're gathering, but not to eat the Lord's Supper. Rather, each one is eating his own supper. You see, there it is, their common meal. They're trying to have a literal meal. Instead of coming and eating the Lord's meal, the Lord's Supper, each one is trying to have his own supper. And the second problem is that in doing that, they were demonstrating the overt selfishness as some were gorging themselves and not sharing with others. So I recognize there's the problem of selfishness. However, as we look at this, I just can't help but notice how Paul dealt with that. When Paul rebuked them, he didn't say, look, you know, share. Make sure everybody gets to have some. He doesn't provide them with directions and say, you know, let the kids go first or let the old folks go first or, or, or let the widows go first or, or listen, don't eat quite so much. Don't pig out and gorge yourself to make sure that everybody gets some. He doesn't say make sure you bring more so that everybody can have some. He actually begins and ends with the same exhortation. There in verse 22, he says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? And then he concludes in verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. He said, that's not what the church is about. That's not what our assembly is about. That's not what we come together for as a congregation, to eat our meal so that we can be full and nourished. We come together to remember the Lord. It's a memorial. It's not a meal. If we're hungry, don't come expecting the Lord's Supper to be something to assuage our hunger. If you're hungry, eat at home. Now, I want you to notice what Paul didn't say. Paul did not say, look, we know you're getting together to eat, but if you're just so hungry that you're famished and ravished and, and you're going to end up pigging out and taking food out of somebody else's mouth, look, just, just get you a little Snickers to satisfy you. He didn't say, have a little snack to tide you over so that you can get together with the saints and then you'll all be able to share. He said, if you're hungry, eat at home. I want you to think about what that means. Now, the Passover was a full meal. If you were hungry, you needed to wait and eat your Passover because that's what it was. It was a meal. If you ate a meal because you were hungry and then tried to come and eat the Passover, you wouldn't be able to do what God wanted you to do. But with the Lord's Supper, that's exactly what you could do. If you're hungry, you can eat at home, and now you're no longer hungry, but when you get together with the church, what you're going to do with the Lord's Supper, you're still able to do because you're not trying to eat a meal. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what Paul demonstrates. If you're hungry, eat at home. If you want to have a literal meal, do it at home. Because we're gathered together to eat, not my supper, but the Lord's supper. 
In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and said, eat this because it represents my body. He took fruit of the vine and said, drink this because it represents my blood. And when you're doing this, you're proclaiming my death until I come. Now, did you notice that? What is the proclamation there? The proclamation is not while we're eating and drinking, we're telling each other what all's in our mind. The proclamation is the supper itself. Do you notice that Paul points out, how are we supposed to be doing this? What is the purpose of this? The purpose of this is for us to remember, not to discuss. It's about me and my mind remembering what Jesus has done. Now, brethren, I full well believe that we can have somebody in our assembly talk about the Lord's death and what it means to us anytime we want to. And I full well believe that we can sing songs about the Lord, His life, and His death in our assemblies anytime we want to. But I think we need to recognize that what Paul said is the Lord's Supper itself is a proclamation. We don't have to add anything to that to make it a proclamation. And while we're participating, we're supposed to be remembering the Lord's death, not relating to others about the Lord's death. We're supposed to be examining ourselves, not exhorting others. We're supposed to be discerning the Lord's body, not discussing the Lord's life. And it may well be, brethren, that we can have somebody talking to us about what it means while we're participating in the supper. It may well mean that we can have a song and sing as the bread is being passed or the fruit of the vine is that That may well be scriptural, but I tell you what, it's not because we've gotten into the New Testament and found some passage where that's what we see they did. And that's what folks are acting like today. That, oh, we've got in the New Testament, we figured out this is what they did. They just got together and they spent their whole time eating and drinking and talking about Jesus. Brethren, look at those passages. That's, not, that's just not there. It's just not in there. And if we're going to try to say that that's what we're going to do, well, that may be okay, but let's find something in Scripture that says that instead of acting like something's there that's just not there. The Lord's Supper was a memorial. And they didn't have to eat a full meal to remember what Jesus had done. You know, the reality is, I don't care what size portion you take. If you want a big old piece of unleavened bread and a big old cup of fruit of the vine, I don't care. And I don't think God cares. We could have, we, we could have a tray full of coffee mugs of fruit of the vine and, and, and drink that back. We could have several loaves of unleavened bread and we all just take big pieces off of it. That's fine. We could do that. But not because the Lord's Supper is supposed to be a meal. We need to take what can help us remember what Jesus did. And we must not be made to feel like we're not spiritual just because we won't eat as much as somebody else does at the Lord's Supper. The reality is what we see in the Scripture is very much like what we've done. Took some bread, divided among them, took some fruit of the vine, divided among them. Jesus explained, here's what it means. We explain, here's what it means. And then we participate in it. We eat it. We drink it. And we remember. Brethren, that's exactly what we find in Matthew 26 and in 1 Corinthians 11. And that's why we do it that way. Because that's what we see there. Some corrections about the assemblies. 
Today, it's vogue and it's hip and it's cool. To actors, though, in the New Testament, we've, we've actually figured out that, that the way folks assembled, it was always casual and informal. In fact, you always had just really small groups. And it was really a lot like when you just have folks come into your home and you're not really going to have somebody that's addressing the congregation. Rather, it's going to be just much more a big discussion as the Christians come together and discuss with one another about what they're supposed to do. And I think perhaps this concept has come from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where, where we see so many more people talking in the assembly than we have today. Perhaps because there are so many more participants, folks have, have gotten the idea that, well, these assemblies were just these big discussion groups or, or small discussion groups and they just get together in a circle and they, uh, you know, they might sing some and then they might talk back and forth some. But the reality is, when we take a look at the scripture, that's, that's really not what's presented. In fact, in those circles, sometimes 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 40 is, is just kind of kicked out of the picture and even laughed at. It's kind of mocked. But all things should be done decently and in order. And that passage just kind of pushed aside and, and acted like it doesn't really mean that much. And there's no doubt that we can take that passage and make our assemblies too liturgical and, and act like it needs to be what some denominations do, and that's not the point. But we need to remember that verse. Let all things be done decently and in order. As we take a look at the assemblies in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I think we do need to admit that in this assembly described here, they had more leading participants than we most often do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 26, it says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. It seems to have this idea that many people within the congregation might have a song they want to lead, I think there that's talking about God has miraculously revealed a song they're teaching the congregation. They have a lesson or a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. This is a picture of, of several people in the congregation that are now going to address the congregation. When we look a few verses down, in verse 20, or the next verse, in verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. And each in turn and let someone interpret. Here you've got two or three tongue speakers and then two or three interpreters. So there's four to six people right there. We've got verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. So there's two or three prophets speaking. But then, even if we go down in verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. There's no doubt as we look at this picture that this congregation and its assembly had more people in leadership roles in the assembly than we most often do. This is quite a few more people than our one preacher, our two prayers and song leaders and maybe a Lord's Supper talk. This is several people that are involved in leading in the assembly. But did you notice what was going on there? Done decently in order, each in turn. None of this was cross-talk. None of this was conversation. None of this was discussion. These were people who had been given a message by God. Each in their turn were allowed to address the congregation. And the congregation was supposed to do what? Listen and weigh what was said. Now, as we relate that to our assemblies today, it would certainly be possible for us to allow more people to address the congregation than we do. If we were going to, we'd have to go a lot longer than an hour probably, and they probably went a lot longer than an hour to get all that in. But we could do that. But if we're going to do it the way they did it, it's not going to be that we're all sitting in a circle and anybody who has some idea gets to jump up and, and, and say whatever's on their mind. 
we find an assembly, brethren, that, that's pretty much like the assemblies that we've been involved in most of our lives. The congregation has gathered together. Some people are going to lead us in some songs. Some people are going to lead us in some prayers. Some people are going to give us a message from God. And our job is to participate. If they're singing, we sing. If they're praying, we pray along with them. If they're addressing us with a message from God, we listen and weigh what is said. But there's nothing in this passage that says, oh, we've got a big discussion going on here. It's not a time for just anybody who has any thought to just jump up and say it. It's a time for us to gather together, to be edified, to edify in song and prayer, and to listen to someone who's brought a message from God. Now, I'm not suggesting that that means that there's no place for any discussions in the assembly setting or within the congregation. Certainly, in Acts chapter 15, we have seen a congregation that has come together and they've had a discussion. In Acts 15 and verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch. We notice back in verse 7, after there had been much debate, there was some give and take there. I'm not saying that there wasn't ever an assembly where they got together and they discussed some things. There is some evidence, some possibility, even in 1 Corinthians 14, that within those assemblies, there was a time for questions to be asked. There in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says in verse 35, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. The point there being that these sisters were not supposed to be asking questions in the congregation. Some would suggest that means that some people were asking questions. And that may be, but i got to tell you that I'm not sure that telling one person they're not allowed to ask questions means everybody else is. We don't want to jump to any conclusions. So, but it's possible that there were some questions that were asked and dealt with within the congregational assembly. But brethren, let's be honest with what's in the passage. This is not the standard of small, casual, informal discussion. It's orderly, decent, listening to people who have a message from God, weighing and considering what they've said and what they've presented. Singing songs, praying prayers, and obviously within 1 Corinthians, participating in the Lord's Supper. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty familiar to me. I don't think we've gotten it as wrong as some folks today are trying to tell us seems to me that we're doing exactly what they did. Apart from the miraculous gifts, which is for another lesson, we're doing exactly what they did. Gathering together, singing, praying, listening to God's message. And then finally, the collection. It's become hip and cool and vogue today to act like 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2 no longer applies to anyone. The way this has often been presented to me is that we're told that Paul was not trying to give a pattern for churches everywhere of all time, but Paul was simply letting the Corinthians know, here is what would be convenient and efficient for you. It's, it's presented as though Paul was saying that, you know, God doesn't really care how we do this part of it. Just do it in a convenient and efficient way. And you know, for you Corinthians, it's a convenient and efficient that on the first day of the week you participate in this collection. And you, you put it together so there won't be a collection. Other folks will actually say to us that there wasn't a collection at all here. That rather, the individual Christians on the first day of the week were setting aside some money into a special place so that when Paul came, they'd be able to get it and bring it to him. But is that really what we find in this passage? 
In 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, the Scripture says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. The first thing I want you to recognize is the principle of biblical authority. If we're going to understand that the New Testament is given and and it provides authorization for what we're supposed to do, we need to ask ourselves the question, where is authorization to do this collection some other way? Where is the passage that says, hey, you know, really, whatever's convenient, whatever's efficient. Where is the passage that says, anytime you want, just drop by the person who's holding the treasury bag and put some money in Where's the passage that provides us authorization with anything other than the first day of the week collection? And if we can't find authorization for anything else, then what we recognize is this passage is the only one that authorizes what we do with the collection. We have work that needs money. Here's how we get it done. First day of the week collection. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now the first thing I have to share with you is that I do recognize in this passage, and, and I know this may be a little bit shocking, but I do recognize that this passage is not a pattern that says, no matter what, every congregation everywhere of all time has to have a collection every first day of the week. It's rather a demonstration that when there is a need, when there is some work that the congregation needs to do that's going to take finances, here's how you take care of it. If, in fact, there was a church that had no financial needs, if there were no preachers that needed supporting, if there were no brethren anywhere that were in need, if there was no work that needed to be done that would take finances, this passage does not tell us that we would still have to come together and have a collection. This passage was, here's a need, they wanted to know how they fill it, and Paul said, here's how. So, if we have needs, financially, David, do we have financial needs in this congregation? Okay, we do. So, we're going to have to do something with this passage. We've got to figure out what does this mean about what we do. We have financial needs. This passage provides us authority. But what does it say? A couple things I want you, I hope you can notice here in this passage. First of all, Paul did not say that Corinthians, this is the convenient and efficient way for you to do it. Now, everybody else might do it a different way, but this is what you guys could do. Notice in verse 1 of the chapter, he said, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Paul says, this is what I teach everywhere. This is what I taught the churches in Galatia. This is what I'm teaching you. Essentially what we see is, Paul's saying, this is what I teach any congregation. If they're asking me this question, how do we take care of this financial work? He'd say, this is what I'm going to tell you. On the first day of every week, take up a collection. The second thing I hope you'll notice there is the word in the ESV, it's directed. He didn't just say, here's what I advise you to do. He said, here's what I am directing you to do. As I directed the churches of Galatia also. The Greek word there is diatasso. And it means to command, put in order, give orders. In fact, in Acts chapter 24 and verse 23, in Acts chapter 24 and verse 23, we see the same word used. I want you to notice what's said there. In Acts 24 and verse 23, Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented him attending to his needs. 
He advised. He said if it's convenient or if it's efficient. No. He gave orders. Some translations say commanded. This is a command. This is not advice. This is not if it's convenient. This is not if you can't come up with anything better. This is, you ask the question, I am directing you, I am ordering you, I am giving command. When you have a financial need, here's how you take care of it. And then he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2 to say, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. This is what you're supposed to do. This is the direction. This is the order. What Paul is essentially saying is if we today had the question, we've got these financial needs, Paul, there's work that we want to do that's going to cost us money. How do we deal with that? Here's exactly what he would say. On the first day of the week, let each of you lay a buy in store so that there won't be any collections when I come. That's exactly what he would say. He would tell each, on the first day of the week, take up a collection. That would be his direction. Now, regarding this idea of the individuals just setting aside, I want you to notice that the reason they were supposed to do this is so that there would be no collections when Paul came. What does that mean he's telling them to do here? You have a collection now, so that when I get there, I don't have to have a collection. I want you guys to do this on the first day of the week so that when I arrive, I don't have to go around getting the money from people. I don't want to have to take a collection when I get there. So what is it just necessarily saying they're doing? They're collecting it in this context. But I want you to think for just a moment. What if this really was saying to the individuals, you need to set something aside? Now, notice what he says, on the first day of the week. You set something aside individually. Most commonly... In the first century, people were paid a day's wages for a day's work. That's why there's the parable of, of those guys that worked at the 11th hour, and at the end of the day, they went to go get their money. They didn't get paid monthly. They didn't get paid uh, bi-weekly. They didn't get paid weekly. They got paid, most of them, daily. And so, if they were going to have money on Sunday to set aside, what did they have to do Monday night when they got their wages? Well, they had to go ahead and set some of it aside Monday night to plan to set it aside on Sunday, right? And what would they have to do on Tuesday night? But what if they were like us? What if they did get paid on just once a week and they got paid on Friday? What are they going to have to do on Friday? Well, they're going to have to set it aside. Why? So they can set it aside on Sunday. Are you starting to pick up how silly that sounds? See, really what the picture you would have there is, look, when you're paid on Monday or when you're paid on Friday, you need to go ahead and set some aside so that on Sunday you can put it in your real special place. Monday night you might just tuck it under your mattress. So that on Sunday you can go find it and put it in your special cookie jar that you're going to use for the actual collection. Because he does direct them to do this on Sunday. Not on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. Do it on Sunday. So as they're setting aside all week long to do this thing on Sunday, it's got to be something special. Do, do you see? I mean, to me, that's just silly. He's not telling them, well, set aside in one place, but in a really special place on Sunday. He's telling them, all week long, you need to be planning to do this. You're going to have to be setting something aside so that when you get to the assembly on Sunday, you'll be able to give into the collection so that when I get there, the money will already be there and I won't have to go around collecting it. 
point is that when there is a financial need that is present, that is pressing, or that is on the horizon, what the congregation needs to do is on their first day of the week assembly, they need to take up a collection so that when the need hits, they don't have to be gathered for the collection. It's just there. We can access the money that's in that treasury, if you will.